Hey, 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 Erica here. Welcome to today's episode where we are discussing ways to manage the self because self management is the second emotional intelligence competency promoted by Daniel Goleman. His emotional intelligence model states that emotional intelligence is comprised of four main factors which are self-awareness, which means knowing your emotions and their effects. It is the awareness of your strengths and limitations at that point in time. The second factor, social awareness, is being aware of how others are feeling and their needs. It is understanding the moods and feelings amongst staff as a result of your social barometer. The third factor of the emotional intelligence model is self-management. This is knowing that you can control your emotions and reactions, even in difficult situations. It's being able to control your triggers. The fourth factor is relationship management working with others so that you are able to progress and move forward together. Having the ability to deal with conflict in order to lead and influence others. So Daniel Goleman, the author of this emotional intelligence model, upheld that handling feelings so that they are appropriate is an ability that builds on self-awareness. Self-regulation is concerned with how you control and manage yourself and your emotions, your inner resources and abilities. It also includes your ability to manage your impulses. Self-regulation also includes an element of taking responsibility for your own actions and ensuring that what you do matches with your personal values. The five elements of self-management are self-control, trustworthiness, conscientiousness, adaptability, and innovation. We hear a lot about needing to control the self. Self-control is important, yes, but how exactly do we go about that? Self-control, an aspect of inhibitory control, is the ability to regulate one's emotions, thoughts, and behavior in the face of temptations and impulses. As an executive function, self-control is a cognitive process that is necessary for regulating one's behavior in order to achieve specific goals. A related concept in psychology is emotional self-regulation. You see, self-control is like a muscle. According to studies, self-regulation, whether emotional or behavioral, was proven to be a limited resource which functions like energy. In the short term, overuse of self-control 
will lead to depletion. However, in the long term, the use of self-control can strengthen and improve over time. St. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval philosopher and theologian, said that self-controlled people were able to preserve their lives. In other words, they were able to do the right things to keep themselves healthy and happy. Self-controlled people can be thought of as having acquired three habits. One, self-preservation. They have a healthy attitude towards things and focus on what they need in order to live rather than what they want. They use what they need to enrich their lives, but do not overindulge. They do not try to exploit others in any way. Two, self-assertion. They know their own value and are comfortable in saying what they think in a way that allows others to speak too. They are firm but gentle with others and do not put themselves or others down. Again, they do not try to exploit others in any way. The third habit is self-fulfillment. Those with self-control are able to understand that it is important to persevere with difficult activities if you are to develop skill in them. However, if you do persevere, you will learn the skill and will get pleasure from it. Fundamentally, self-control allows us to enjoy the good things of life in moderation without wanting too much and knowing when we have had enough. You will know that you need to exercise self-control when you feel either overwhelming desire to do something pleasurable, which you know is not good for you, especially in excess, or disgust at the idea of doing something especially if you know it is good for you. You can get an idea of your levels of self-control by thinking about something that you really want, whether food, drink, or object. You might, for example, feel that you really love chocolate. Now, give yourself a rating from 1 to 10 for how much you really want that something on the right occasions and in the right amounts. The strength of the pleasure that you get from buying, eating, or otherwise possessing it, and how disappointed you would be if you couldn't have it. Consider whether you feel that you are governed by your desire for that thing. For example, you might find yourself saying, I really have to have some chocolate right now. Are you distressed by not being able to have it? For example, I've gone a whole day without being able to buy any chocolate because the shop was closed. That really spoiled my day. Are you in control regardless of being able to have it? For example, I haven't had any chocolate for a few days, so a bar wouldn't hurt, but perhaps I'll leave it until tomorrow because I had a piece of cake earlier. Going through a process like this will help you to assess whether your desire is appropriate or excessive, and whether or not to indulge in what you want. 
I must warn you, wanting the wrong things is never a good thing, whether that is wanting something that is legally, morally, or ethically wrong, or simply actively bad for you. It's always a problem. We said before that self-control is about using reason to master instinct. There are a number of questions to ask yourself when you really want something that will help you to apply reason to your desire. These include, what sort of things do you want and how many? Do you desire a reasonable amount, too many or too few? It's reasonable to want a few things, but if as soon as you get something you're looking for the next, that's not so good. And if you want something in such large quantities that it affects your health or well-being, that's also bad news. How much do you want the object? How far would you go to get it? If you would do something illegal or put yourself in debt to obtain it, that's much too strong. How much enjoyment do you get out of it? Do you enjoy it enough to make it worthwhile or simply move on to wanting more or something else? When do you satisfy the desire appropriately? Is now a good time or would later or another occasion be more appropriate? How much pain does it cause you not to satisfy the desire? Is it excessive to the extent that it is damaging your enjoyment and that of other people? Applying reason to all of these can help you to apply self-control when you need to do so. Self-control is not about total abstinence. It's about finding the right balance for you. There's an old saying that a little bit of what you fancy does you good. And provided that it is not illegal or actually damaging, that is almost certainly true. Denying yourself what you need is as bad as overindulging. It'll certainly quickly remove quite a lot of joy from your life. You can find the right balance by thinking through your desires using the questions above and considering what too little, too much, and just right would look like. Once you know, you can strive for just right and you are well on your way to developing self-control. What about trustworthiness and conscientiousness? Well, trustworthiness and conscientiousness are two elements of self-regulation or self-management, which in turn is a key component of emotional intelligence. They are, in effect, almost two sides of the same coin because both are about acting with integrity and in line with your values. People who are trustworthy and conscientious are reliable. If they say that they will do something, then you know that they will do so. Daniel Goleman, the author of several books on emotional intelligence, identified certain behaviors 
related to trustworthiness and conscientiousness that were consistent in those with good emotional intelligence. Trustworthy people act with integrity. Integrity gives them credibility with those around them. When they say that their word is their bond, you can know that you can rely on that. Their values are consistent with their actions. They are also prepared to confront those who act unethically and take a stand against unethical behavior, even if that is unpopular. A point to note, however, is that conscientiousness can lead to problems. Conscientiousness is highly valued, but without empathy and other social skills, it can lead to problems in social groups. For example, conscientious people set themselves very high standards and often find organizing themselves easy. They are therefore inclined to be judgmental about those who may struggle to turn up on time or keep their promises. Conscientiousness can also take the form of rigid maintenance of standards which can dampen creativity. If you tend towards being very organized and pride yourself on your ability to achieve, perhaps you may like to look at developing creative thinking skills to ensure that you are not being too bound by your determination to be reliable. It is important to find a balance between maintaining personal standards and a careful and very human understanding that everyone falls short sometimes, even you. Did you know that integrity is critical for credibility? In many jobs and areas of life, there is a certain ambiguity about what is right and wrong and particularly what is expected. However, research shows over and over again that those who act in accordance with their inner moral compass are more likely to be respected and to be happier with their lives than those who allow themselves to be pushed into doing something that's not consistent with their personal values. Integrity is crucial for credibility. Without it, we cannot be relied upon and others will quickly learn that. Adaptability is another crucial element which helps us grow in maturity and was defined by Daniel Goleman as being flexible in responding to change. So why do some people seem to sail gently through all the changes life throws at them while others get upset if they have to change even their breakfast cereal? (laughs) See, the key is in how you view change and your level of acceptance of uncertainty. There is plenty of evidence that what we find most stressful as human beings is uncertainty, not change in itself. Even the most difficult life events, such as divorce or marital separation, can be more stressful in terms of the uncertainty. Very often, it's not the event, but the worry about what will I do or how will the children cope that people find hard? But 
There are some simple skills that you can develop that will help you to manage change in your own life, whether through work or life events. Now, let's talk a bit about stress. Stress can cause genuine physical symptoms, including dizziness, tension headaches, diarrhea, and insomnia, which in turn can make you feel worse and even more stressed. This kind of negative feedback loop is common in nature and is designed to make you stop. Your body is trying to tell you something, and if you don't listen to it, you could find yourself becoming very ill indeed. Don't be tempted to ignore the symptoms of stress and hope that they go away by themselves. They won't. Instead, you need to deal with the causes. If you are struggling with stress and it's making you unwell, you should seek professional help from a counselor or a healthcare provider. Stress left unchecked can lead to depression, a potentially serious mental illness. For more information on stress, please make sure to listen to episode 5. One of the root causes of stress is change. Most people do not know how to effectively handle change when it presents itself in their lives. There is plenty of evidence that we all go through more or less of the same process when dealing with change, although particular stages may take rather longer in some cases than others. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross looked at the way people come to terms with the news that they have a terminal illness and developed a model called the transition or change curve. Later studies show that people actually react in similar ways to bereavement and also to changes at work. We will cover change management thoroughly in another episode. But being innovative or innovating is a skill like any other. There are people who appear to sparkle with new ideas, throwing them out every other day or so it seems. We can all develop our innovation skills with a bit of practice. The skills and techniques of innovative thinking are not just vital in work, but useful in everyday life as well, helping us to grow and develop in new situations and think about how to adapt to change more easily. Innovation is being open to novel ideas and approaches. Daniel Goleman said that innovative people look for new ideas from a wide range of sources. They're prepared to consider new ways of solving problems, even if that's not the way that we've always done it around here. (laughs) And innovative people generate their own ideas and are prepared to see things from other perspectives, taking risks in their thinking. Reflective practice, which is thinking back over such situations, enables us to analyze and understand why we acted in the way that we did, and this, in turn, can help us to behave more intelligently in the future. When reflecting, it is useful to think of yourself in a positive way. 
Don't think I have completely messed that up. I'm a failure. But aim for something more positive, such as I can use those experiences to learn and become a better person. In your learning journal, it may be helpful to work through a simple process like this. For our lesson challenge today, once you get more experienced, you will probably find that you want to combine steps or move them around, but this is likely to be a good starting point. Identify a situation you encountered in your work or personal life that you believe could have been dealt with more effectively. Describe the experience. What happened? When and where did the situation occur? Any other thoughts you have about the situation? Reflection. How did you behave? What thoughts did you have? How did it make you feel? Were there other factors that influence the situation? What have you learned from the experience? Theorizing. How did the experience match with your preconceived ideas? That is, was the outcome expected or unexpected? How does it relate to any formal theories that you know? What behaviors do you think might have changed the outcome? Experimentation. Is there anything you could do or say now to change the outcome? What actions can you take to change similar reactions in the future? What behaviors might you try out? What does it mean to be responsible for your life? I want us to talk about boundaries for a bit. Dr. Henry Cloud says, knowing what I'm responsible for or not comes from knowing what I control or not. And that in turn comes from knowing who has ownership of something or not. For example, I want you to visualize two photographs. Let's use the yard metaphor. If your yard is a messy one, you can either complain that you do not have the resources or knowledge or support to have a manicured garden, or you can be inspired by a manicured garden, gain knowledge about gardening, ask for help, and save up what you need in order to get to a more desired garden. That, in an image nutshell, is how you take responsibility for your life. With this example of the yard metaphor, if I own it, I know who controls what happens inside and with the yard, and I know who's responsible for what happens in and with that yard. That is to say, I know how to subdue life. Inside this metaphoric yard are my feelings, my thinking, my beliefs, my behavior, my dreams, and whatnot. 
All these are mine to own, and no one else owns or is responsible for these. These means that I cannot blame situations or people for how I feel or think or behave, but it starts with empathically owning it myself understanding something in the situation or others reactions created a response in me that I need to understand so that I can own it and choose to align my response with who I know I am not responding from who they are so with all this being said what is a boundary a boundary is a dividing line In geography, a boundary is that which marks the end of one property or jurisdiction and the beginning of another. In interpersonal relationships, a boundary is what divides one person from another so that each can have separate identities, responsibilities, and privileges. A boundary creates necessary space between individuals Healthy boundaries define expectations and show respect for others. Boundaries can be used in healthy ways and unhealthy ways. The way to know which boundaries are healthy is to examine the motive. Are you protecting yourself or someone weaker from potential harm, either emotional or physical? If so, then you are setting healthy and needful boundaries. However, if you are maintaining distance simply because you desire to exclude someone, that is unhealthy. Boundaries that maintain cliques or prohibit opportunities are unhelpful. A boundary is a definite place where your responsibility ends and another person's begins. It stops you from doing things for others that they should do for themselves. A boundary also prevents you from rescuing someone from the consequences of their destructive behaviors that they need to experience in order to grow. Proactive people show you what they love, what they want, what the purpose and what they stand for. These people are very different from those who are known by what they hate, what they don't like, what they stand against, and what they will not do. While reactive victims are primarily known by their against stances, proactive people do not demand rights. They live them. In the physical world, boundaries are easy to see. Fences, signs, walls, Moats with alligators, manicured lawns or hedges are all physical boundaries. In their different appearances, they give the same message. This is where my property begins. The owner of the property is legally responsible for what happens on his or her property. Non-owners are not responsible for the property. Boundaries define us. They define what is me and what is not me. Knowing what I'm to own and take responsibility for gives me freedom. If I know where my yard begins and ends, I'm free to do with it what I like. 
taking responsibility for my life opens up many different options. However, if I do not own my life, my choices and options become very limited. In addition to showing us what we are responsible for, boundaries help us define what is not on our property and what we are not responsible for. I am responsible for me and I am responsible to you, not the other way around. So what is the difference? Boundaries help us to distinguish our property so that we can take care of it. They help us to guard our heart with all diligence. In short, boundaries help us keep the good in and the bad out. Sometimes, however, we have the bad on the inside and the good on the outside. In such instances, we need to be able to open up our boundaries to let the bad out and the good in. In other words, our fences need gates in them. Boundaries are not impenetrable walls. Our property lines or boundaries need to be permeable enough to allow passing and strong enough to keep the danger out. Well, what then falls within my boundaries? Feelings. Feelings play an enormous role in our motivation and behavior. They should neither be ignored nor placed in charge. Attitudes and beliefs. Attitudes have to do with your orientation towards something, the stance you take towards others, God, life, work, and relationships. Beliefs are anything that you accept as true. Often we do not see an attitude or belief as a source of discomfort in our life. We blame other people, ultimately even our creator, We need to own our attitude and convictions because they fall within our property line. We are the ones who feel their effect and the only ones who can change them. Behaviors, behaviors have consequences. You reap what you sow. The problem comes when someone interrupts the law of sowing and reaping in another's life. To rescue people from the natural consequences of their behavior is to render them powerless. Choices. Taking responsibility for our choices enables us to produce self-control. We often hear others, and sometimes we do too, say, I had to, or she or he made me. We need to realize that we are in control of our choices, no matter how we feel. Making decisions based on others' approval or on guilt breeds resentment. Setting boundaries inevitably involves taking responsibility for your choices. You are the one who makes them. You are also the one who must live with your consequences. And values. What we value is what we love and assign importance to. Often we do not take responsibility for what we value. We get caught up in valuing the approval of others 
rather than staying true to our identity and character and limits. I want to highlight two aspects, namely, one, setting limits on others. In reality, setting limits on others is a misnomer. We cannot do that. What we can do is set limits on our own exposure to people who are behaving purely, poorly. That is, you can be that way if you choose, but you cannot come into my house when you are or behave like that. And two, setting our own internal limits. We need to have spaces inside ourselves where we can have a feeling, an impulse, or a desire without acting it out. We need self-control without repression. We need to be able to say no to ourselves. This includes both our destructive desires and some good ones. Internal structure is a very important component of boundaries and identity, as well as ownership, responsibility, and self-control. What about our talents and dreams? Do they fall under our boundaries? Yes, they do. Our talents are clearly within our boundaries and our, our, our responsibility, yet taking ownership of them is often frightening and always risky. It takes work, practice, learning, resources, and grace to overcome the fear of failure. And what about our thoughts? Well, we must own our own thoughts. Certainly, we should listen to the thoughts of others and weigh them, but we should never give our minds over to anyone. We are to weigh things for ourselves in the context of relationship. Sharpening each other is iron, but remaining separate thinkers. We must clarify distorted thinking. We rarely see people as they really are. Our perceptions are distorted by past relationships and our own preconceptions of who we think they are, even the people we know best. Taking ownership of our thinking requires checking out where we may be wrong and taking ownership for this. We need to make sure that we are communicating our thoughts and needs to others. We have our own thoughts, and if we want others to know them, and if it is appropriate to share them, we must tell them. And so we come to desires. To know what to ask for, we have to be in touch with who we really are and what are our real motives. So why do boundaries break down? There are a couple of reasons for this. Maybe... You are afraid of the consequences of saying no. You wonder whether your non-compliance will be used against you. You may see compliance as part of your role. You're afraid of rejection as you base your self-worth on your actions. You feel good if you say yes and please others. You want to be seen in a positive light feel extremely indebted to someone so that you feel obliged to say yes or too guilty to say no. Remember that asserting yourself is a choice and 
you have to believe so much in what you choose that you are willing to bear the consequences. For our episode challenge, I would like you to reflect on the following questions and write in your journal. What are the boundaries needed for your life? What are the boundaries needed within your work? What do you need to do to implement the boundaries? Are there too high boundaries somewhere that you've guarded yourself off? What do you need to do about that? I know we've spoken a bit about boundaries and I would like you to understand assertiveness too because they tend to go hand in hand. Let's say Deborah's patience is beginning to wear thin with her colleague Ronan. A few days earlier, he had undermined her yet again, this time in front of other colleagues during the weekly team meeting. So she decided to tell him how he made her feel. But just as she was about to approach him, she lost her nerve. Ronan made similar comments again yesterday. And once again, Deborah felt humiliated and frustrated at his inability to see the effect that his comments had. But she still couldn't bring herself to speak to him about it. She feels upset with herself, but resigned to the situation. It's possible that you've been in a situation like Deborah's and like her, you might have felt unable to do anything about it. But by learning how to be more assertive, you can stand up for yourself and become a strong and confident communicator. So what is assertiveness then? A person who is assertive clearly communicates their wishes and sets boundaries, but does not make demands of other people or lash out if requests are not met. The ability to be assertive allows you to stand up for your own or other people's rights in a calm and positive way without being either aggressive or passively accepting wrong. It can also protect from bullies and other social predators. From a cognitive standpoint, assertive people experience fewer anxious thoughts, even under stress. From a behavioral standpoint, assertive people are firm without being rude. They react to positive and negative emotions without becoming aggressive or resorting to passivity. Although everyone acts in passive and aggressive ways from time to time, such ways of responding often result from a lack of self-confidence and are therefore inappropriate ways of interacting with others. The Concise Oxford Dictionary defines assertiveness as forthright positive insistence on the recognition of one's rights. In other words, Assertiveness means standing up for your personal rights, expressing thoughts, feelings, and beliefs in direct, honest, and appropriate ways. It's important to note also that 
despite being assertive, we should always respect the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of other people. Assertiveness enables individuals to act in their own best interests, to stand up for themselves without undue anxiety, to express honest feelings comfortably, and to express personal rights without denying the rights of others. Before leaving you with some steps on how to assert yourself, I want to remind you that it is not always easy to become assertive, but it is possible. So if your disposition or workplace tends to be more passive or aggressive than assertive, then it is a good idea to work on the following areas to help you get your balance right. One, value yourself and your rights. To be more assertive, you need to gain a good understanding of yourself as well as a strong belief in your inherent value and your value to your organization and team. This self-belief is the basis of self-confidence and assertive behavior. It'll help you to recognize that you deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. It'll give you the confidence to stick up for your rights and protect your boundaries and to remain true to yourself, your wants, and your needs. Here's a tip. While self-confidence is an important aspect of assertiveness, it's crucial that you make sure that it doesn't develop into a sense of self-importance. Your rights, thoughts, feelings, needs, and desires are just as important as everyone else's, but not more important than anyone else's. Two, voice your needs and wants confidently. If you're going to perform to your full potential, then you need to make sure that your priorities, your needs, and wants are met. Don't wait for someone else to recognize what you need, you might wait forever. Take the initiative and start to identify the things that you want now. Then set goals so that you can achieve them. Once you've done this, you can tell your boss or your colleague exactly what it is that you need from them to help you to achieve these goals in a clear and confident way. And don't forget to stick to your guns. Even if what you want isn't possible right now, ask politely whether you can revisit your request in six months' time. Find ways to make requests that avoid sacrificing others' needs. Remember, you want people to help you. And asking for things in an overly aggressive or pushy way is likely to put them off. Doing this may even damage your relationship. Three, acknowledge that you can't control other people's behavior. Don't make the mistake of accepting responsibility for how people react to your assertiveness. 
if they, for example, act angry or resentful towards you, try to avoid reacting to them in the same way. Remember that you can only control yourself and your own behavior, so do your best to stay calm and measured if things get tense. As long as you are being respectful and not violating someone else's needs, then you have the right to say or do what you want. Four, express yourself in a positive way. It's important to say what's on your mind, even when you have a difficult or negative issue to deal with. But you must do it constructively and sensitively. Don't be afraid to stand up for yourself and to confront people who challenge you and your rights. You can even allow yourself to be angry, but remember to control your emotions and to stay respectful at all times. Five, be open to criticism and compliments. Accept both positive and negative feedback graciously, humbly, and positively. If you don't agree with criticism that you receive, then you need to be prepared to say so, but without getting defensive or angry. Receiving feedback is a great tool that can help you to see past your emotional reactions to feedback and instead use it to achieve significant positive change. Six, learn to say no. Saying no is hard to do, especially when you're not used to doing it, but it is vital if you want to become more assertive. Knowing your own limits and how much you are able to take on will help you to manage your tasks more effectively and to pinpoint any areas of your job that make you feel as though you're being taken advantage of. Remember that you can't possibly do everything or please everyone, so it's important that you protect your time and your workload by saying no when necessary. When you do have to say no, try to find a win-win solution that works for everyone. Seven, use assertive communication techniques. There are a number of simple but effective communication techniques that you can use to become more assertive. These are use I statements. Use I want or I need or I feel to convey basic assertions and get your point across firmly. For example, I feel strongly that we need to bring in a third party to mediate this disagreement. Eight, empathy. As discussed earlier, always try to recognize and understand how the other person views the situation. Then, after taking their point of view into consideration, express what you need from them. For example, I understand that you're having trouble working with Ariane, but this project needs to be completed by Friday. Let's all sit down and come up with a plan together. Nine, escalation. If your first attempts at asserting yourself have been unsuccessful, then you may need to escalate the matter further. 
This means becoming firmer, though still polite and respectful with the person you are requesting help from and may end in you telling him what you will do next if you still aren't satisfied. For example, John, this is the third time this week I've had to speak to you about arriving late. If you're late once more this month, I will activate the disciplinary process. However, remember that regardless of the consequences that you communicate to the person in question, you may still not get what you want in the end. If this is the case, you may need to take further action by setting up a formal meeting to talk about the problem or escalating your concerns to human resources, HR, or your boss. 10. Ask for more time. Sometimes it's best not to say anything. You might be too emotional or you might not know what it is that you want yet. If this is the case, be honest and tell the person that you need a few minutes to compose your thoughts. For example, you might say, Dave, your request has caught me off guard. I'll get back to you within the half hour. 11. Change your verbs. Try using verbs that are more definite and empathic when you communicate. This will help you to send a clear message and avoid sugarcoating your message so much that people are left confused by what it is that you want from them. To do this, use verbs like will instead of could or should, want instead of need or choose to instead of have to. For example, I will be going on vacation next week, so I will need someone to cover my workload. Or, I want to go on this training course because I believe that it will help me to progress in my role in my career. Or, I choose this option because I think it will prove to be more successful than the other options on the table. 12. Be a broken record. Prepare the message that you want to convey ahead of time. If, for instance, you can't take on any more work, be direct and say, I cannot take on any more projects right now. If people still don't get the message, then keep restating your message using the same language and don't relent. Eventually, they will likely realize that you really mean what you're saying. For example, I'd like you to work on the Clancy project. I cannot take on any projects right now. I'll pay you extra to do it. I cannot take on any more projects right now. Seriously, this is important. My boss insisted this gets done. I cannot take on any more projects right now. Will you do it as a personal favor? I'm sorry. I value our relationship but I simply cannot take on any more projects right now. Here's another tip. Be careful with the broken record technique. If you use it to protect yourself from exploitation, that's good. But 
if you use it to bully someone into taking action that's against their interest, it can be manipulative and dishonest. The final step to learning how to assert yourself is scripting. It can often be hard to know how to put your feelings across clearly and confidently to someone when you need to assert yourself. The scripting technique can help here. It allows you to prepare what you want to say in advance using a four-pronged approach that describes one, the event. Tell the other person exactly how you see the situation or problem. For example, Janine, the production costs this month are 23% higher than average. You didn't give me any indication of this, which meant that I was completely surprised by the news. Two, your feelings. Describe how you feel about the situation and express your emotions clearly. For example, this frustrates me. It makes me feel like you don't understand or appreciate how important financial controls are in the company. Three, your needs. Tell the other person exactly what you need from her so that she doesn't have to guess. For example, I need you to be honest with me and let me know when we start going significantly over budget on anything. Four, the consequences. Describe the positive impact that your request will have for the other person or the company if your needs are met successfully. For example, if you do this, we will be in a good position to hit our targets and may get a better end of year bonus. Being assertive means finding the right balance between passivity not assertive enough in aggression, angry or hostile behavior. It means having a strong sense of yourself and your value and acknowledging that you deserve to get what you want. And it means standing up for yourself, even in the most difficult situations. What being assertive doesn't mean is acting in your own interest without considering other people's rights, feelings, desires, or needs. That is aggression. You can learn to be more assertive over time by identifying your needs and wants, expressing them in a positive way, and learning to say no when you need to. You can also use assertive communication techniques to help you to communicate your thoughts and feelings firmly and directly. It likely won't happen overnight, but by practicing these techniques regularly, you will slowly build up the confidence and self-belief that you need to become assertive. You'll also likely find that you become more productive, efficient, and respected too. Self-management is an essential part of becoming mature. Learning to regulate and manage yourself, your emotions, and your inner resources is a key stepping stone to turning into a mature person. Only those who understand and value themselves 
can draw on their own resources and will be able to fully relate to others in a mature way. Again, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope to catch you on the next episode. Until later. Thank you.